have a Bible, open up to Revelation chapter 2 as we continue our study through this amazing book of the Bible. And a happy Palm Sunday to you as well. Uh, later this afternoon, as is my tradition, I'll post on Realm. I, I, uh, every year during Easter week, Holy Week, I post a guided reading. So for those of you who are interested in reading along with the events that took place in Jesus' life and ministry during this week, you'll have a, basically of all four Gospels, I'll basically put every section that talks about what happened that day so that you can read that either for your own edification or you can lead your family through that. All right, well, we're going to continue our study of Revelation. In the next three weeks, we'll be looking at three very similar churches. Uh, this morning, the church of Pergamum. Next week, uh, for Easter Sunday, the church of Thyatira. N nothing says Easter Sunday like studying Revelation and the church of Thyatira, I guess. And then the week after that, the church of Sardis. Um, each of these churches are very similar, and like most churches, they have their share of strengths and weaknesses. Now, by contrast, in our study of the seven churches of Revelation in these two chapters, the, the, these three churches are similar and very different than the ones that kind of bookend them. For example, the church of Ephesus, the very first church, and the church of Laodicea, the very last church, um, they weren't really a mix of strengths and weaknesses. If you remember Ephesus, uh, it was just weaknesses. Both those churches received a strong rebuke from the Lord. If you remember two weeks ago, uh, Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, basically, if you don't repent, you've lost your first love, and if you don't turn it around, I will come and remove your lampstand from you. The church of Laodicea, which we'll look at in a few weeks, the Lord only had harsh words to say to them. He said that you're wretched, pitiable, and blind. Ouch. Those are some hard things. In contrast, the church of Smyrna and Philadelphia, the church is basically church number two and church number six on those bookends, Jesus had only good things to say of those, each, of those two churches. And right in between, the, the middle three, they are a mix. Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, they are a mix. Jesus has both good and bad to say about them. They hit some home runs. They strike out. They are an encouragement. They are a warning to us. They have conviction, but they also compromise. There's godliness in the church, but there's also worldliness in the church. And if you're a Christian, I hope that there are times in your life that you are experiencing uh, wonderful fruit, seasons of spiritual growth and vitality. You are feeling God's good pleasure over you. You are bearing fruit. You are excited about the gospel. And there are probably seasons when things are not doing so well in your Christian life. In fact, there may be seasons in your life where you may need a reminder, a rebuke that Christ is King that you are not the king or queen of your life. There may be seasons of your life, your priorities get all out of whack, and you start believing that, no, it's about your will and your dominion, and you forget that it's about God's will and His dominion, and, and hopefully by God's grace, you feel that sense of that that's wrong, you feel conviction, and by God's grace, you're led to repentance. But for the most part, your life will be somewhere on a spectrum between those two poles, Right? It's not, there's not always you're going to be on one side or always on the other. The reality is you're going to be somewhere in between, like that proverbial saying. Sometimes it's, it's two steps forward, and then you take a step back in your spiritual walk, and then maybe another step back in your spiritual walk, and then you have three steps forward. There's an ebb and flow. What stands to reason, if that's how uh, Christians are, then it makes sense that that's how churches are as well. 
And so it makes perfect sense that the majority of the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3, they're not really the ones that just always receive rebuke or always receive praise, but they're somewhere in between because they have strengths and weaknesses. So this morning, we begin looking at the first of those three churches, the church of Pergamum, which I call them the faithful but faltering church. So by now, you should be at Revelation chapter 2. Look to verse 12, and if you wouldn't mind, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12, and we'll read down to verse 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also... You have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If the city of Smyrna that we looked at last week was an ancient version of San Francisco, then I think the city of Pergamum would be an ancient version of Washington, D.C. For at Pergamum, Rome had placed its seat of provincial power. Rome was without doubt the ancient superpower of the world, and obviously certain cities within their dominion played various roles. As Smyrna was a cultural, economic epicenter for the empire, much like Ephesus was, Pergamum would have been an administrative and executive hub for the empire in that region. Historically, the kingdom of Pergamum was the first of those kingdoms to swear allegiance and fealty to the Roman Empire. By the time the book of Revelation is written, uh, emperor worship, we talked about the emperor cult that was established throughout the entire empire, was firmly established for over 150 years by the time John is receiving this revelation from Jesus. In fact, Pergamum was a thoroughly religious city, and it was a city indeed. I want to show you a video that I have. I got this, I think I got it from the YouTube channel of the Berlin Museum. They have an entire exhibit dedicated to ancient Pergamum, and I, I think it's a great video. Here we go. Let's see if we can get this thing loaded here. And I, I want to show you this because so often when we talk about these ancient cities, I just have piles of rocks to show you, and we forget how grand, how intimidating some of these ancient cities where the early Christians lived were. Now, what I'm showing you right here, that's not even the main, that, that's not even the entire city. That's just what we call the acropolis of the city. This is where the, the business, the, the, the religious, the civic actions of the city take place. If you look in the video, you can see that this is high up on a hill, and down below in the valley is actually the city of Pergamum proper. 
So this amazing structure that we're looking at was what you might call the city center. Pergamum in Greek actually means citadel. This was a very intimidating city in that it was nestled in a valley, and, and the main city center was high atop, a, a basically almost like a mountaintop, like a citadel overlooking the valley. Now, I'm, I'm, just, I'm doing the YouTube thing, so I'm going to scrub, uh, scrub quickly over here. Uh, and, and I want you to look on the edges. You'll see how far down the city actually exists. But as you can see from these videos, Pergamum was no podunk town. Pergamum was an established, grand city. You can almost see that down below in the valley, the actual where the, the rank and file would live. Right now, we're, we're, we're kind of zooming through the altar of Zeus. Pergamum was a thoroughly established city, and it was a thoroughly religious city. Now, by that, I don't want you to think by religious, I mean that there was a Baptist church on every street corner right next to the Methodist church, and then you had maybe an E-free church down the street. That's not what I mean by a religious city. Um, it was a religious city in that they had four or five major belief system, major pagan gods who ruled the affairs of their society. Now, if you count the imperial cult of Caesar, that would be one, but they also had the temple of Asclepios, uh, the, uh, the Dionysus, Athena, and the altar of Zeus. Now, being such a pagan city, let me back this up here. Sorry, I'm trying to get my, my slides all together. Is that going to roll again? Okay, we'll just pass over that. Okay, being such a pagan city, Pergamum did not have a large population of Jews, somewhat like Smyrna had. And what that meant for the Christian church was that they didn't have to worry about the, the persecution that came from the Jews. You remember in Smyrna, the slander of the Jews often led to their imprisonment. Now, so, so while in, in Smyrna, though, Jesus makes it clear that it was Satan behind fueling some ill-intended uh, Jews to bring slander against the church, Jesus made it very clear, as we read in Pergamum, that it wasn't just the Jews, that it wasn't Jews at all that the church had to worry about, but the reality that Satan was the power behind Pergamum in all its forms. In this city of Pergamum, you had an entire alternative society steeped in paganism. It's not just the machinery of the empire of Rome that was a problem, but Pergamum had an enormous library, second only to the Alexandrian Library in Egypt. If you're familiar with ancient history, the Alexandrian Library was world-renowned. Now, when you think of a library, uh, don't think of the, like the one we have down at Mission Viejo or here in Laguna Hills. Their libraries were a little bit different. Not only did it include tomes of, of civics and history, but it was magical tomes. It was occultic tomes. So they had a massive library of these things. They also had the famed healing arts of the priests of Asclepios, whose their, their symbol was a serpent. That comes in handy, or that plays uh, predominantly in the book of Revelation in chapter 12. And also the massive altar to Zeus, the Savior, they called him. We, we saw that on the video. In other words, friends, there was an entire ecosystem, an entire alternative society feeding the mind, body, and the spirit, all added to the demands of Rome. Let me put that in context for you. In some sense, it may sound weird to say this because I said they were a very religious society, but I want you to imagine this was a thoroughly, in our understanding, as thoroughly a secular society as you could possibly imagine in that there was nothing there that uh, adhered to a, of course, a Judeo-Christian worldview at all. It was a whole nother kingdom with its whole nother structure dedicated to all their gods and all their services, which is why I believe Jesus makes use of two key words when He's addressing Pergamum. You may have picked up on them. They're powerful words, the words sword 
and the word throne. We'll talk about the sword in a little bit, but let's talk a little bit about the throne. So connected was Pergamum's allegiance to the empire of Rome and their devotion to pagan gods that Jesus, did you notice what he calls the city when he's talking about to his church? This is, he calls it Satan's throne. This is where Satan himself dwells. What he's saying is that this is such a thoroughly pagan society, such a society dedicated to ignoring him, that is where Satan's throne is installed. You see, the altar of Zeus um, was a massive altar. Um, sorry, let me, let me show you. So let me get you oriented again to Pergamum. Here we have what we just looked at on the video is the, the, the Acropolis. And right here, we are at the bottom of this hill looking up. Now, if you look very carefully, this hilltop, you can see built into it is this theater and this, these pillars, this, this colonnade area right here. So this is from the street level. We're zooming in so you can see very clearly that's the theater built into the, the walls or the, the city. Now, they had something called the Altar of Zeus, and it was a massive altar, friends, 120 feet by 118 feet. So massive was this altar that it was also nicknamed the Throne of Zeus. And here are some pictures of it. You may have seen it in the video. So this is obviously a miniature of it, and here it is, the, the, the Altar of Zeus, also known as Zeus's Throne. Just to give you some sense of um, proportion, here's a bunch of students in the museum sitting at its steps. This was a massive altar to Zeus, a massive throne, which is why many people believe that Jesus called this, this is where Satan's throne is located. So pagan was Pergamum that Jesus says, this is where Satan dwells, because you had every god you could possibly want worshiped there. Friends, in a very real sense, the terror that the church of Smyrna was about to face, I don't know if you picked up on that, already existed here in the church of Pergamum. Did you notice verse 13? That they did not deny his name even in the days of Antipas who was killed. Antipas was already martyred in the church of Pergamum, already experienced their first martyr. Eusebius, the church historian, lets us know that there were three other individuals that we know by name that were martyred or executed at Pergamum, the Pergamum church, Carpus, Papulus, and a woman named Agathonike. Yet, in spite of the fact that they were currently experiencing persecution and martyrdom, they didn't bend the knee. You notice that. Jesus says, you did not deny my name. You may have an interesting reading there in verse 13. Jesus says, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Other translations, I like the NIV, says you did not deny faith in me. I think that makes better sense of the original. Friends, that says a lot about these early believers, that they did not bow the knee to Rome. That takes courage and conviction, and the Lord is very aware of that. It is hard to hold your ground when you live in a society that's gone completely off the rails, but the church of Pergamum was doing that, and Jesus says, you need to be commended for that. But and here's the important lesson for us. Their biggest problem as a church was not necessarily the persecution that was coming from without, as it might have been the case for the church of Smyrna, but it was the worldliness and the compromise from within. And so Christ has some words about that. Notice in verse 14, he says to them, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So, so what's he talking about there? Now, 
he's talking about Balaam, and and, in a little bit we'll talk about the Nicolaitans. Basically, the teachings of Balaam and the teachings of the Nicolaitans are one and the same thing. In case you don't know, Balaam was a false prophet from the Old Testament. If you're a note taker, write down Numbers chapter 22 to 24. This is where the story of Balaam is recorded for us. Balaam basically is kind of a mercenary, a prophet mercenary, who's hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse the children of Israel. Israel had just come out of Egypt and has been wandering the, the wastelands. They're about now to go in the promised land. They're bordering Moab, and the king of Moab says, I want them wiped out. And so he hires a prophet to curse them. It's actually one of my favorite accounts of the Old Testament. It includes a talking donkey, of all things. But Balaam tries to curse Israel, and every time he goes to curse Israel, he's unable to do it. In fact, he ends up pronouncing blessings over God's people. In the end, Balaam tells the king of Moab, I can't curse these people. I tried, but every time I do, God pronounces a blessing over them. But in order to get his pay, Balaam informs the king of Moab, look, if you can't take Israel out, externally through persecution or through curses, you can probably take them out internally through compromise. And that's exactly what happens in Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3. We read about this. Where Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now let me read to you. You say, well, how do, what does that have to do with Balaam? How, what's the connection there? Let me read to you Numbers 31, a few chapters after this account, where Moses links Balaam's actions to this event right here. Numbers 31 and verse 16 says this, Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and so the plague came amongst the congregation. And so Balaam convinces Balak, the king of Moab, look, we can't curse them. We can't bring them down from the outside, but we can make them compromise from the inside. What you need to do is bring, basically, bring women to them. Have them bow down to the false gods and the idols. Have them participate in these feasts and festivals, and eventually they will compromise, and we see that's exactly what takes place. Israel begins to whore with the daughters of Moab, and then they not only just whore physically, they whore spiritually by eating food offered to their gods and enjoying their feasts. Now, let's get back to Revelation. The teaching of Balaam is their behavior... But the teaching of the Nicolaitans is what they're acting upon. Now you say, well, Nicolaitans, that kind of sounds familiar. It ought to because you remember two weeks ago we read about the Nicolaitans in the church of Ephesus. Go back to chapter 2, verse 6. Yet this you have, Jesus writes to the church at Ephesus, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So, the Nicolaitans showed up at the church of Ephesus, but we know what Jesus said to the the Ephesian church. Remember in verse 2, they did a good job in rooting out false apostles and exposing them and basically chasing them away. The Ephesian church held on to their doctrine. Well, apparently the Nicolaitans left the church at Ephesus and got a foothold just 80 miles north in the church of Pergamum. Friends, false teaching is persistent, and false teaching is always dangerous. And false teaching never comes in an obvious form. 
In fact, sometimes false teaching comes with highly accredited Christian credentials. According to the early church fathers, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Clement of Alexandria, the Nicolaitans are the theological descendants of a man named Nicolaus. You may recognize that name. Nicolaus was one of the original deacons that were appointed in Acts chapter 6 to serve the Hellenistic widows, Acts chapter 6 verse 5 in particular. So the Nicolaitans were descendants, theological descendants, disciples, you could say, of Nicolaus, one of the first deacons the church appointed. Our best guess is that Nicolaus misunderstood or purposely perverted the teaching that Paul talked about in Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6 through 9 of the freedoms we have in Christ. And the Nicolaitans took that to mean basically excuse for leading sexually permissive and indulgent lives and not needing to pursue holiness. And that's teaching spread throughout the church. It tried to spread in the church of Ephesus, but they were wise enough. You remember them. They knew the doctrines, and they expelled them. But the church in Pergamum didn't have the theological understanding to combat them, and their teaching began to spread amongst the church. Friends, it's a sad reality, but sometimes the worst enemies of the gospel come from within the church itself. It happened here in Revelation, it happened in the early church, and it happens today. Some of the worst Christian teaching, some of the worst false teaching in the church today comes from one of the largest Christian broadcasting networks that there is, the Trinity Broadcasting Network. Now, I know I'm going to get some emails because I know some of you watch it, but you need to be aware of this. I went on their website this week and counted no less than 10 false teachers that I know teach false gospels and another two or three who are really suspect. And apparently Mike Rowe is on their network as well. So I don't know why Mike Rowe is there from Dirty Jobs, but (laughs) that's my point. They're confused, right? I mean, I don't know. Maybe Mike Rowe's a Christian or not. But my point is the most, one of the most well-known Christian broadcasting networks is a purveyor of some of the worst false teaching in the nation. They even have someone who denies the Trinity on the Trinity broadcasting network. Go figure. Now, to be honest... I believe he has actually made some changes. His name is T.D. Jakes. Some of you may be familiar with him. So I believe he's in transition. But T.D. Jakes, historically, is a oneness Pentecostal. He does not believe in the Trinity. And and even now, what I've read, he doesn't call them persons. He calls them manifest. Well, we're getting to the The point is, (laughs) they even come in Christian credentials, and they bring false gospels. So the question we have to ask is, what exactly was the Nicolaitans teaching? What were they teaching in the church of Pergamum that in verse 15, Jesus says, if this doesn't stop, I will make war with them. Those are heavy words. What were they teaching? Were they denying the Trinity or were they denying the deity of Christ? No, they weren't doing those things. Verse 14 gives us a hint. Look back at the text. But I have a few things against you. They're holding the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block so that, here it is, so that... They might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Friends, the phrase there, eating food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality, is directly linked to the account we just read in the book of Numbers with Israel's error in Midian, right? So there it is. There's the whoring, the sexual immorality, the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. They were compromising. This directly applies what happened in Numbers, directly applies what's happening in Pergamum. 
Pergamum. The Nicolaitans were saying, look, we're free in Christ. We have our salvation. This world is passing away. He secured for us a new world. So what you do now does not matter. You don't need to live in holiness. You don't need to abide by the sexual standards of this Christian belief system. You can enjoy, and that is keeping you on the outside of society. Keep in mind, these cultic feasts, they're well known. So uh, Dionysus was known as Bacchus in, 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 in Latin. In the Roman mythology, Dionysus is the Greek counterpart. Their festivals were, I mean, they were drunken raves, orgies, violence. They would literally tear living animals apart as a way to get themselves energized and eroticized. And that was happening in the culture. And the Nicolaitans were saying, look, we can participate in these things because we're free in Christ. It doesn't matter. You don't need to keep yourselves isolated from the society. Enjoy because you're forgiven and your, next li- your life is guaranteed. And so they were allowing the church, bringing down their standards and their commitment to the Lord. The word whoring, if you know your Bible well, doesn't just refer to sexual immorality. It refers to spiritual immorality. And oftentimes, the the physical whoring was just the reality that in their hearts they had departed from the Lord, and that that was just, that, that physical infidelity was just a realization of their spiritual infidelity to God. So in some ways, friends, it's like the church at Pergamum is the flip side of the church at Ephesus. What do I mean? You see, at Ephesus, they got their doctrine all right, right? They were internally strong, but their witness to the world was weak. Pergamum, on the other hand, is the flip side of that. They got their witness to the world right. They wouldn't deny Christ when the persecution came, but their doctrine was weak, and they were internally compromising because of it. Ephesus was strong inside but weak outside. Pergamum was strong outside but weak inside. And eventually, because they didn't understand what the gospel taught, they didn't understand, they didn't have a grasp of the doctrines that they needed to, it would eventually lead to their compromise in other ways as well. So they had the lifestyle of a Christian, right? They were were following the code somewhat, but because they didn't have the worldview, the understanding of what Scripture taught, they were crumbling from the inside, and it would only be a matter of time before the church entirely collapsed. Friends, and this highlights a problem that the church will always face. I think Ephesus and Pergamum are great examples of this. Ephesus, they were focused on the doctrine, and they got so into that, yet they, they, their hearts became cold. Pergamum focused all upon at this point, start focusing on their freedoms and what they could do and how they could be like the world. In other words, we're always going to have to walk the balance between our freedoms in Christ and the commands to holiness we have in Christ. We're always going to have to walk the line between legalism, right, and antinomianism, right? You guys know the word legalism means it's all about the rules, all about following the order and the commands, and antinomianism, which basically means no law. It's about being free in Christ. We can do whatever we want. It doesn't matter. And we will always go back and forth between those two realities. The legalists want to focus on tradition, disciplines, right, holiness. And the antinomians want to focus on just being real, freedom and relevance. The reality is, though, friends, neither one of those are the gospel. The gospel is not merely commands, and the gospel is not merely freedom. The gospel is actually both commands and freedom. You say, well, how does that work? Because that doesn't make any sense, and that's why we go to one side or the other, right? You've heard me talk about this. My wife, she's the legalist in the family. I'm the antinomian. She never met a rule. She didn't love, right? I never met a rule I like to follow. 
We're all that way. We're, we're always going back and forth, back and forth. The reality is we need both. You see, the disciplines that the legalists are so good at and that the antinomian wants to get rid of because what happens is the discipline of the legalist becomes, well, that's what it means to love God. I have my disciplines, and that's how I know I'm right with God. And the antinomian knows that's not relationship with God. It's totally freedom. It's relating with God freely. But since they don't have the disciplines, they don't even know the God they say they can relate to because they're not in the Word. They're not in prayer. They're not studying. You see, we need both. True discipline brings the freedom of really knowing who God is, right? Holiness and relevance, they're not mutually exclusive. Holiness at its root means to be separate. From, means to be separate. If you're just focused on holiness and you're separate from everyone and everything, you'll never be able to be a witness for the gospel. But if your focus is just being relevant, I want to be just like the world, well, let me tell you, a Christian who looks just like the world is no use to the world because you've got nothing to point them to. So we always need them both. You see, the gospel's not commands. The gospel's not commands only or freedoms only. The gospel's grace. And grace is what can bridge the gap between those things. Grace is that, that, that ineffable dynamic that Augustine, the church father, says. It's a brilliant statement. It's confusing, but if you get it, you get it. That Jesus Christ demands the kind of love that can never be demanded. That's so true. And it's so true. And, and the church at Ephesus, they focused on the doctrines and, and all the legalism, and they didn't realize that they also needed grace or the freedoms in Christ. And the church at Pergamum was all about the freedoms they had in Christ and didn't care about the doctrines. And they were starting to compromise in very fundamental ways. And we were always being faced by that challenge as well. But, but here's another, maybe even more important lesson that we learned for the church at Pergamum. If the enemy can't cause you to deny Christ from straight-out persecution, right? And they couldn't do that to the Pergamon church. They killed Antipas. We know from the records of three other people they killed, and they would not deny Christ. If the enemy can't get you to deny Christ from straight-out persecution, he will get you to deny Christ from straight-out seduction. And he did take the church of Pergamon out that way. The, the, the enemy couldn't get him out from fear and external persecution, but he got him down. He, he took him out because he seduced their hearts. Friends, what way are you susceptible to faltering like the Pergamon church? Because you are, like me, you are susceptible to faltering. Will it be through overt fear and in-your-face persecution, or will it be through subtle seduction and spiritual apathy. Let me put it this way. Will it be hardship and persecution that causes you to deny Christ? Or will it be blessings and pleasures that cause you to forget Christ? Either way, the devil doesn't care. He doesn't care what means he uses as long as he gets the end result. And if it's persecution and hardship that gets you to deny Christ and forsake him, fine, he'll use that. But if it's pleasure and blessings that get you to forget Jesus as your Lord, he'll take that too. He doesn't care. He's, at the, he's, he's playing the end game here. My friends, are you aware of where you're susceptible? Because the enemy is, 1 Peter 5.8, 
What's it say? It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because the devil roams like a devouring lion, what? Seeking someone to devour. How is he going to devour you? How? I can't answer that question for you. You need to know. Is it fear and persecution that will take you out, or is it comfort, blessings, and pleasures? Either way, the enemy does not care, and he'll use whatever it takes And friends, this is why we need the grace of the gospel. I guess the question I'm asking is, what aspect of grace do you need to grow in today? The more you know your tendency, are you a legalist? Are you antinomian? Is it persecution you're fearing that's going to take you out? Or pleasure? The more you know yourself, the more intentional you can be about your spiritual growth. Where do you need to grow in grace today? Do you need the grace to pursue holiness? Do you need grace to pursue a love and passion for the lost? Do you need grace to say no to some of the freedoms you have in Christ? Do you need grace to enjoy some freedoms you have in Christ? The church of Ephesus needed grace to love the world and to share the gospel with it. Do you? The church of Pergamum needed the grace to pursue holiness and be grounded in Scripture and doctrine. Do you? The question is, Where do you need the grace of the gospel in your life so that you can grow? And finally, the church of Pergamum is called to righteousness there in verse 16 and 17. Therefore, repent, Jesus says, turn around, right? Change your mind. Get a grip on what God says about living in these days. Don't compromise. Don't lower your standards so you can fit in and be like the world. Friends, you may be reading some of it. I'm reading a lot about... um, what are they calling it? Permissive or progressive Christianity. And it sounds like the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I can be ju- we can be just like the world. As a matter of fact, that's what we need to be. We need to be like the world. Friends, a permissive or, or progressive Christianity seems to be an emasculated Christianity. Christ says, if you don't repent, wow, look at verse 15. He's going to come and make war with them. Notice what he says, with what will he use? the sword of his mouth. So, so, so he's using, there's a lot of metaphors here, a lot of imagery. We know that must be the Word of God, so that, that's a hint to us that knowing God's Word is key to what's going on in the Pergamum church, but he also uses the, imbo, the symbol of the sword for a second time. Why would he do that? Because they all would have known that the symbol of the, the sword was a symbol that all Roman governors had, and it was to symbolize their ultimate authority over life and death over everyone in their province. It was called the right, to the, the right of the sword. And so Jesus uses that image for himself. By the way, it's the same image of himself we saw in chapter 1, verse 16. Right? So again, he's pulling from all that vision in chapter 1, and he's finding what this church needs to hear about who he is to their situation. He's reminding the church of Pergamum that it's not Rome It's not Asclepius, it's not Dionysus, it's not Athena, it's not Zeus, it's not any of these pantheon of gods, that's the ultimate authority. It's Him. It's a very powerful image. But what I love about verse 16 and 17 is, and I think we need to hear this too, what the Pergamum church needs to realize and what we need to realize is that Christ's call to separate from worldly practices and to pursue righteousness is not to deny us these things essentially, but so that we can actually enjoy them in the fullest sense of these things. Friends, a compromised church, a compromised Christian is a miserable church. It's a miserable Christian. 
And why is that? Because if you are compromised in your faith, you don't know the delight of making much of Christ in everything, in every way. And because you're compromised, you will never fully enjoy the things of this world, even if you give yourselves to them with, without, without restriction, because you will not know how the things of this world were designed by God to bring us the fullest pleasure. When you look at people in the world who are pursuing pleasures unabandonedly, because they think that's what's going to bring them fulfillment, it never works out that way. It's because the pleasures themselves were not intended to give them the ultimate pleasure. The pleasures themselves are gifts from God, and when we abuse them, they abuse us. And so the Lord's call to holiness and to not participate, to not get part of these festivals and these feasts, and of course theirs were, were debauchery, and it, it was clearly something you'd want to avoid, but in their culture they enjoyed it. Christ's call for us to be different is not to deny us, but so that we can actually enjoy it the way they were intended to be given to us in the first place. Friends, to fully enjoy this world, I'm going to say something that maybe doesn't make sense, but it biblically makes a lot of sense. To fully enjoy this world, to fully enjoy this world, you can't be owned by this world. If you want to fully enjoy the things of this life, you can't be owned by the things of this life. Because only then can you appreciate them for what they are and not make idols out of them that will betray you. So to fully enjoy this world, we can't be owned by this world. And the only way not to be owned by this world is to be gripped with a vision of God's glory and majesty so powerful that you want your life centered around Him. Guys, that, that is so key to being a Christian. And in a culture like ours that's always throwing entertainments and pleasures at us, this is really important to know. That if you really want to enjoy those pleasures, you can't be owned by those pleasures. And the only way not to be owned by those pleasures is to be consumed by the pleasure of something else. To be radically God-centered. To be radically stoked on Jesus. I remember reading John Piper. He, he framed it best. It was a, well, how do I know I'm that way? And, he, you know, Piper, he laid it out so beautifully. Look, oh, I thought I put the quote up there. That's just the book. This is the quote. He says, this is the acid test of being biblically God-centered and faithful to the gospel in how you answer this question. Do you feel more loved because God makes much of you or because at the cost of His Son, He enables you to enjoy making much of Him? Does your happiness hang on seeing the cross of Christ as a witness to your worth or as a way to enjoy God's worth forever? Is God's glory in Christ the foundation of your gladness? Wow! That's powerful stuff, guys. And in a self-esteem, self-absorbed culture like ours, that is countercultural. That is countercultural. Do, do I feel more love because, because I think he died for me or that, that he died for me so that I can live for him? That's radically different than the way we conceive of it, don't we? Oh, friends, in verse 17, we've got to wrap this up, but verse 17, back in your text. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So verse 17 is a reminder, and I'll unpack it, that God is saying, for the one who gives me everything that they are, I'll give them the best of it all. 
Now, to us, this, this promise of Christ makes no sense. Hidden manna, white stone, what? But to them, it made a lot of sense. To them, it made a lot of sense. Think of the context. Think about what we're studying here, both in the book of Numbers and what's happening here in the, in the city of Pergamum. They're talking about feasts because in that culture, feasts, it was a way to participate in the social fabric of the culture and, and their, their social entertainments and their worship of God. All that was kind of put together. And the church was resisting that, but the teaching of the Nicolaitans said, hey, no, you can participate in that. You might, you might have sexual relationships with these people, but spiritually you're Christ and you're saved, so don't worry about it. So they're being tempted to be pulled into that. And Christ says, no, the one who can overcome that foolish teaching, the one who can overcome that false doctrine, I'm going to invite you to the greatest feast of all. I'm going to give you some of that hidden manna. Remember what the manna was, wasn't it? Exodus 16, it was God's beautiful provision to the people in, in, in Israel who were wandering in the wilderness. And God fed them this as a type of the one feast that one day all His people would come to. Go with me to, um, keep your finger there in Revelation 2. Go to Revelation 19. Revelation 19 and verse 9. And so, so the Lord says, look, to the one who overcomes, to the one who can resist the compromise to partake in these feasts, I'm going to give to you some of the hidden manna. They knew what that means. With a white stone with your name on it, I'll explain that in a minute. Revelation 19, 9. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Go back to Revelation 2. Jesus is saying, I'm inviting you. You can have some of that hidden manna. The, the promise that I gave to Israel long ago that was a type of the feast that would one day come that's fulfilled in Revelation 19. To the one who overcomes, I'm going to give you part of that feast. And here's your invitation. Let me give you this white stone with your name on it. Now, stones, now, there's about 12 different ways we can understand the white stone. The one that makes the most sense in this context, in this time, was stones were often used as a token of admission, a, a, like a ticket, if you would, in our culture. And so they would have their names on this stone and would give, it was the basic, their admission to the feast or the festival. And the Lord is saying, look, the one who overcomes, the one who can resist this temptation, I will give you a ticket. I'll give you a personal invitation to the feast that gives life. That's what I promise you. And just like he did with Smyrna and just like he did with Ephesus, he promised them a blessing of eternal life that mapped on directly to their current struggle and time. And just like the Pergamum, Jesus says, if you can resist those feasts that only take life from you, I will give you an invitation to the feast that gives life to you. And this is coming from the one who has all authority. This is not coming from just a measly emperor of Rome. This is coming from the king of kings, to the one who overcomes. Let me conclude with a reading from John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 31 to 35 Jesus is having a dialogue, and they say back to him, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let's pray. Father, we too are like the church of Pergamum.
We live in a society that is completely an alternate society to the kingdom you promise. We have our entertainments, we have our worships, we have our institutions of worship, and many of them are blasphemous towards you. Help us as a church to resist the call to lower our standards and participate in those things. Father, help us as, as Christians as we study these letters. If we are those who are so strong on doctrine but weak in the way we apply that, help us to apply the grace of the gospel to our lives. For those of us who, who are kind of globbed on to an evangelical lifestyle but we're not pulling from the deep riches and re reservoir of Scripture, help us to be students of Scripture. Father, help us to remember that these churches' messages were for them but also for us. And give us ears to hear what the Spirit says. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.